In your Bibles to Second uh, Kings chapter five. I think we have more children's workers and children in the back than we do uh, adults here this morning, at least. We're in Second Kings chapter five. Uh, the story is the story of of Naaman. So it's a very um, common story. You've probably heard that as a child. Um, perhaps it's a very well-known uh, uh, story in children's church. You perhaps you, you might have heard it or it's been preached on before. I'd like to focus on specifically two servants. Um, the servant mentioned at the beginning and the servant mentioned at the very end. There's kind of a servant-master relationship here, um, parallelism throughout this passage, and uh, it, gives, it gives it quite a bit of uh, quite a bit of interest, but it, um, it helps us to to really to see the the contrast here between the several different characters. All right, so we're going to read a few verses here. First, uh, Second Kings chapter five. Now Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master, because of by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was also a mighty man of valor, but a leper. And the Syrians had gone out on raids and had brought back captive a young girl from the land of Israel. She waited on Naaman's wife. Then she said to her mistress, If only my master were with a prophet who was in Samaria, he would heal him of his leprosy. And Naaman went in and told his master, saying, Thus and thus said the girl who was from the land of Israel. And the king of Israel said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he departed and took with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. Then he brought the letter, letter to the king of Israel, which said, Now be advised when this letter comes to you, that I have sent Naaman my servant to you, that you may heal him of his leprosy. And it happened when the king of Israel read the letter, and he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and make alive that this man sends a man to me to heal him of his leprosy? Therefore please consider and see how he seeks a quarrel with me. So it was when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes. Then he sent to the king, said, Why have you torn your clothes? Please let him come to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you give us uh, clarity um, of uh, the text today. I pray that you would give us understanding and an application of uh, these truths that are found in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. The, the World War II battleship uh, William D. Porter made three, three mistakes as it attempted to protect the president. Uh, that's um, Franklin Delano Roosevelt at the time. Uh, back in 19, uh, 1943, um, it was a dangerous time for ships across the Atlantic. In fact, um, about 2,500 ships have been, had been hit and sunk by German U-boats, uh, more than 5,000 Sailors and passengers went to their deaths um, because of the German, the, the, these German submarines. Uh, so uh, this, uh, this ship, the William D. Porter, was tasked with a secret mission as a battleship to accompany the USS Iowa with uh, President Roosevelt on the ship um, as he made his way across the Atlantic to, to a conference that he would meet with uh, Stalin and Churchill. Um, so it was, it was a top secret um, mission to, to protect the ship as it went across. Um, the, the ship, as it was um, called by its own sailors, the, the Willie D, uh, was a brand new ship, um, and it was full of new sailors, and that was kind of the, the whole issue here. Um, and they were entrusted with this mission to protect the president, um, but they didn't really know their ship very well. Um, 
as, as their ship left Norfolk, uh, they failed to pull the anchor up all the way. Um, and uh, as the ship left its, left its berth, it um, tore off the, the, some of the decking and the um, lifeboats of another carrier beside it, uh, as it as it left for its mission. Uh, and as it was approaching the, the Iowa, they accidentally knocked off one of his depth charges and, um, and it exploded in the water. Thankfully, harmlessly, didn't, har didn't harm the president. And so somehow, um, uh, the president and uh, the USS Iowa uh, still had faith in the, the William Porter and the ship, their battleship, and one of their uh, entourage that was protecting them. They had several other carriers um, and another battleship or two that was in this whole entourage taking, uh, taking the president across over to Tehran um, to, for this conference. Uh, they arrived in uh, Gibraltar, in port in Gibraltar, for a short stop, and uh, FDR asked them to, to give him a demonstration of some of the, the firepower of the ship, and they were, they were happily to oblige with that. Um, the, these other battleships and the carriers, um, they sent up weather balloons and uh, fired their, their cannons and their anti-aircraft guns at these balloons. And it was at this point that the, the William Porter decided to um, do a drill uh, with their uh, torpedo ordinances. Uh, and so they, uh, their um, torpedo uh, captain uh, decided to run this drill, and the closest ship to them was the Iowa with the president on it. Um, so you can kind of see where this is going. They, these torpedoes were supposed to be disarmed, and so they went, they were go, they went through the process of firing them, uh, these disarmed torpedoes, except that the third torpedo was armed. Uh, and actually, the, 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 the torpedo was fired um, at the president's ship, the Iowa, uh, and they quickly tried to relay the message to the Iowa, and they kind of bungled the communication, so things took longer. I mean, it took them a few extra costly seconds, and they, finally the Iowa realized what was going on. And at this point, the president's on the deck. He's in his wheelchair. There's actually a safe room on the ship, um, but it's a couple decks away, so there's not time to get the president anywhere. And so the president know that, knows that he can't do anything. He's, he's actually interested in trying to see the, look over and see the torpedo coming. Um, the, the, ships, the, the Iowa's captain is frantically trying to turn the ship, and it turns out that battleships are as hard to turn as a battleship is. Uh, and they're just barely able to get this, the, the whole battleship maneuvered a little bit. And as you can guess, uh, the FDR lived, the ship was not sunk. The torpedo uh, hit the, the turbulence that, that was um, turned up by the propellers and it, it kind of broke up the torpedo and everything ended up being fine uh, as far as the Iowa and the president goes. Not quite so fine for the porter. Um, uh, they were, originally, they, as soon as I was over, the, the Iowa turned all their guns on the porter because surely it couldn't have been just a uh, act of incompetence, um, but of course it was an act of incompetence. They uh, sent the porter back to Bermuda, arrested all the soldiers, or all the sailors, I'm sorry, um, and, until they were able to sort things out. The captain was uh, demoted. Uh, actually, the, the torpedo um, captain was pardoned by, by Roosevelt, and then they, they sent the ship to Alaska to patrol up Alaska in January. So. That's what happened to the porter. That's what happened to uh, misplaced faith. Uh, perhaps um, a little bit of inexperience, um, but they had, had, 
they misplaced their faith in this ship. And as we look at this passage this morning here, we see um, the reality that, that, that faith in God is not misplaced. Uh, when we, we, th- this passage shows us, uh, ultimately, the, the big picture is that God's mercies are extended to everybody. And as we read the passage in Isaiah, we see that God uh, has shown mercy to everyone, not just to the chosen his chosen people, Israelites, he has shown mercy to everybody. Um, and it says this, as you remember our reading, my salvation will come and my righteousness will be revealed. And this is and to the to foreign people, and it says, and to the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it holds fast my covenant. These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. So as you think through this, uh, this passage that, that, that uh, describes God's uh, his amazing mercy towards not just Israel, but to all peoples, we can recall people throughout the Old Testament uh, who, who were Gentiles, who were not Israelites, but who... Turn to the one true God. Can anybody think of any, any um, non-Israelite people, some Gentile people that God, that, that, that had faith in the true God? Does anybody remember any? Yes. The Samaritans. Yeah, the Samaritans. So, yeah, so we were, some of the Samaritan people believed in the true God. And, when, and then when Christ ministered to, to the, the, the lady at the well, there was a great number of people who believed. Good. Any other uh, people that, that the Bible uh, points out? What about in the book of Ruth? Ruth, she was a Moabitess. Um, and because of, uh, she, had, she had married uh, Naomi's sons, and because of Naomi's faith and the, 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 the faith of the family, she came to trust in the living God. You think of Rahab. Uh, when, when the two spies came to, to check out Jericho and see how, uh, what, how, how they could um, surround the city and what their weaknesses were and how God would use them, she hid the spies and she's mentioned in, the, in, the, in Hebrews chapter 13 or Hebrews 11 in the, the Heroes of Faith chapter as, some, as, a, as a Gentile woman who had faith in the true God. Um, you think of uh, Nebuchadnezzar who likely later in his life uh, came to trust in the true God, especially after God uh, humbled him uh, in, in, his, in his kingdom. There are others like Jethro and perhaps uh, many of the Ninevites when uh, when Jonah came and preached that God's judgment was coming upon them. So throughout Scripture, we see many evidences that God's mercy was extended to all. And that was an answer, that was a direct uh, uh, experience or a direct um, example of, of God's uh, covenant to Abraham when he said, I'll make you a blessing, not only uh, make you a great nation, but you're going to bless all the people of the earth. Salvation comes to all. And of course, we, we see that in the New Testament uh, when uh, Christ, in Christ's ministry uh, on earth and as he, with his death and resurrection. And as we look at this passage today, we see a very similar event in the life of Naaman. Um, and uh, and this point of Israel's history 
Israel was not, uh, was not loving God, was not separated and set apart before God. And again, that same passage in Isaiah chapter 56, on the very end of it says, They are shepherds who have no understanding. They have turned to their own way, each to his own gain. I want you to keep that last phrase in mind that, 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 these, that God is describing through the author Isaiah, that his people have turned away and many of them have sought after their gain, made their gain and the, the material possessions more important than loving and serving God. Uh, we'll see this here at the very, the very end of the passage as one of our, uh, as one of our points here. Um, so as we, as we look at this, there's, there's five characters that we're going to look at here. We're going to focus specifically on the, the first and the last, but we're going to go through some of these different points here uh, with these different characters. And it's really kind of a, a story or a contrast between two servants, a tale of two servants here. Uh, we're going to see kind of the, the difference here. All right, so point number one here, faith overcomes enmity. Faith overcomes enmity. So the first four verses here uh, says, Now Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a man of, of great and honorable man in the eyes of his master. Okay, so again, we have the servant-master relationship um, uh, in this more of a military sense. Uh, he was a, uh, Naaman was a commander, uh, a great general, um, but of course he was under the auspices of the king. It says he was great and honorable man in the eyes of his master because, I want you to look at this, by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. So Syria was a military powerhouse. Their neighbor, their, their neighboring countries to kind of to the northeast of Israel and it got, had given Israel a lot of problems over the last several years. Israel had turned away from God and God used Syria as a as a hand of his judgment um, over Israel. But ultimately it says that, that God gave, um, this, that made uh, Syria victorious uh, through the leadership of Naaman of, the, of his army. He was also a, great, a, a mighty man of valor, but a leper. All right, so he describes him, he, was, he had leprosy, a, a, perhaps a, a disfiguring of the skin or uh, some type of um, disease that really made him a a social outcast in a lot of ways, and despite his military fame and might and his, what he was able to accomplish, had this kind of blight on him. Verse 2 says, And the Syrians had gone out on raids and had brought back captive a young girl from the land of Israel. She waited on Naaman's wife. So in, in recent time here, uh, that's not reflected in the, in the, the text, uh, just a, a mention of it, Naaman had been taking raids, going across the border into Israel, and... Perhaps as you may picture it on, on, on movies where some marauding tribe comes in and, and stirs up the nest and they, they overrun a city and, and take its wealth and burn the city and take over. Um, you can perhaps uh, view that in the same way. Na- uh, Naaman had been doing this to Israel. And in one of these raids, um, he had taken uh, uh, some of the children and people slaves. And this young girl, is unnamed here, uh, becomes his slave or becomes a... Um, this, this uh, servant for his wife. So faith overcomes enmity. So, so you picture uh, Naaman or Naaman's wife, this, his family, on the one hand, and this young girl on the other hand. Okay, she's, she's serving them. She's just been ripped away from her family. She's from Israel. Israel and Syria are, 
are enemies against each other. They're not on good terms. Perhaps right now there's kind of an uneasy peace, um, but, there's, but they're enemies. But this girl's faith in God, her knowledge of God's mercy and love for all people, gave her a love for her captor, overcame the tendencies to look as Assyrians as enemies. It helped her to overcome the, the natural reaction to hate her captor and to really be bitter or angry towards Naaman and his wife and family because of what he had done taking her away. Verse 3, Then she said to her mistress, If only my master were with the prophet who was in Samaria, for he would heal him of his leprosy. This young girl who's unnamed, her faith in God and her knowledge of how God loves all people had compassion on her master, the very master who had enslaved her and taken her away from her family. And her desire was for his healing. And she knew where that could take place. And likely that Naaman had, had done everything he could to uh, be healed uh, from this leprosy, to, to seek out medical help and, and had not found any relief from it. So verse 4 says, And Naaman went and told his master, saying, Thus and thus the girl who is, with, who is uh, from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he departed and took with him ten, uh, ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. All right, so uh, he is sent uh, to go down and find out if he can uh, get help for his, um, uh, for his disease. But the, 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 my favorite part of the story is this girl who overcomes all the prejudices she should have towards, towards Syrians, towards her master. And instead of having enmity, instead of having conflict, instead of hating her master, she had peace. And that's what faith can give us. Faith can give us peace in our lives. We don't have to have anger and enmity. We don't have to have enemies. So as, as I kind of thinking through this, we, we've, the last year and a half, there's been just a multitude of, of controversies and just in our culture. Um, you, you think of through from, obviously through the pandemic and, and disputes over practice, best practices and the politics and injustices, both seeming and both real injustice. People are angry. People are, are fearful. And I kind of, and as I'm out painting and working in people's houses, I kind of pick up on this sometimes as, as, I, as I talk to people or just see people's reactions. I was, um, uh, a couple, several weeks ago, I was actually in my own neighborhood painting a subdivision fence, and I was on the outside of the fence on the sidewalk area, just the common area um, next to the street, and the lady who lives in the house on the other side of the fence came tearing over and accused me of, of uh, wanting to kill her and her cat. I mean, no joke. She's like, what are you doing here? You could kill me and my cat. <laughs> like, I mean, I had a paintbrush in my hand. I, mean, I, don't, I don't know what more I could do to, to weigh that. And fortunately, actually, Julie was with me because she was helping pick out colors, um, trying to match the wall, and, and she was able to kind of uh, calm the lady down. But this lady was fearful. I was, uh, just a few weeks before that, I was, um, my boys and I were, were up in Sun City, up in the retirement area up there, um, they were, we were cutting a yard up there in this, um, uh, for this uh, Jewish customer of, us, of ours. And her neighbor, who uh, I, I guess is a 
bitter enemy of his came over to the fence and offered my boys and I water to drink. Because it's like in the 90s or so, it was a very hot day. And my, our customer got really mad at her for doing this. She's like, you're, you're stealing my time that I'm paying for. And so they start, and she started cussing her out. And, I was, and I, this is all happening as I, was, I, was, I wasn't right there with them. And then the, this, this neighbor said some very mean things, racial slurs back to her. I was like, oh, my word. I mean, so these are the, the type of things that are, people are fearful. People are angry right now. And we, we have a sense of enmity with a lot of people just because of disagreements over politics or disagreements over the way things are handled sometimes. And God calls us to be people of peace. God calls us to, to display our faith in a way that brings peace and not, um, and not uh, strain things up. And just like this girl was able to, to offer the, the peace that comes from, from, from God, we can take those same examples. Faith overcomes enmity. Sorry, I have that, missed that there. Right, point number two, faith overcomes fear. And we'll go through a lot of these points uh, uh, fairly quickly here as we um, go through these, the different characters here. Um, faith overcomes fear. Um, we see this in verses 5 through 7 in the character of, uh, of uh, King Joram. Uh, so he's the king. King Joram is the, the king of Israel at this time. Um, and if you know anything about the king of Israel, uh, kings of Israel, after they had had a, basically a civil war and Israel and Judah split up, uh, the kings of Israel, none of the king of Israel... Were, were good kings. None of them loved God. They all ruled out of wicked hearts. And it's repeated over and over again as a description of these kings. And in fact, uh, King Joram was, the, uh, was the, one of the sons of Ahab. So right away, uh, you hear the word Ahab, you probably picture uh, some of his, he and his wife Jezebel and them killing um, Naboth, this is just so they can have his land and all the wickedness that, that happened because of Ahab. And the Bible described Ahab as being one of the most wicked kings of Israel. Uh, and so Joram is one of, is one of Ahab's sons. Uh, so just as a bigger picture here, um, a few years before this, Ahab had been killed in battle against the Syrians. Against this very, na- this very nation that we're talking about here, that, 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 is, that there's kind of an uneasy peace here, a little bit of unrest. Um, they're not warring against each other directly, but, the, but Naaman had been taking these raids down to Israel. Um, and so you, you, you keep in mind here, Joram, had, uh, his, his dad had, led, had gone out to battle against the Syrians, had lost the battle, and lost his life in that same battle. So you picture that if this was, if you are a king and your father had died in battle against these people, you're not going to really like those people. In fact, you're probably going to want to, you're, want to take vengeance if you could. Uh, and I have a feeling that Joram knows that their nation is not strong enough to go, to go against them. So this is where we are. We see in verse 5, Then the king of Syria said, uh, Go now and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he departed and took with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. Then he, this is Naaman, brought the letter to the king of Israel, which said, Now be advised, when this letter comes to you, that I have sent Naaman, my servant, to you, that you may heal him of his leprosy. All right, so 
This is Joram. He's the son of Ahab. His dad had been killed by some of these same people. And he gets this letter, and he knows likely that, his, that their armies wouldn't stand a chance if they were to fight against Syria. So what's going through his mind at this point? He's fearful. He's fearful. Um, so verse 7 says, And it happened when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and make alive that this man sends a man to me to heal him of his leprosy? Therefore, please consider and see how he seeks a quarrel with me. So Joram uh, gets this letter and he interprets it as, as a Syrian saying, I want you to heal this man. If you don't, we're coming after you. This is, this is how Joram reads this letter and how he understands it to be. The, the king of Syria, from all um, we can tell here, was not trying to start any conflict, was just wanting his, his, uh, this, his military captain to, to experience healing. But Joram becomes very fearful. So in this passage, we have people that respond well in faith and people that don't. And uh, of course, Joram does not respond well here. Not a, a man of faith, does not fear God, does not lead his country under the principles of God's word. Um, and, and one um, point of interest here, Naaman comes with his entourage. It doesn't say how many people came. It, said, it does mention he had servants, but likely he had some soldiers and protection. But he's bringing with him... If you read here, it says uh, 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothing. So I've always pictured this as a child, as him having really a, a bag of money on the back of a camel or a donkey or something. But the, the reality is, in today's money, one person uh, said it, it could be worth about three quarters of a billion dollars. I mean, that, that's, a, that's a king's ransom that Naaman is bringing down saying, I'm willing to pay this to you if you, if you heal me. Uh, and this is the amount of money he's carrying with him. And so while there's, while there's some un- political unrest and some um, uh, unrest between the two, there's, there's also some sense of, of peace between them. He's able to carry this money all the way down from Syria down to, to Samaria, the capital of Israel, uh, and as he uh, seeks uh, help from the king. Uh, so, so Joram responds in fear. Uh, he was a man who did not embrace God, had, had uh, embraced idolatry, turned to idols for protection, turned to false gods uh, instead of to the true God. And he is in a, is in a um, state of fear here uh, as, um, as, as, as we see him introduced here. And instead of having fear, when we have true faith in God, we can have confidence. The opposite of fear, of being fearful, is faith in God, which, which should bring us a confidence that God will take care of us. God will provide answers. God will direct our paths. Joram, Joram obviously did not take this path, was, was, was very fearful, was... Um, I mean, it says he tore his clothes out of just out of, of utter fear and consternation. What am I going to do? I, he, Syria is trying to pick a war with us. We have no, um, no way of defending ourselves or a, a tougher army. And this man wants, us, wants me to heal him. And again, he's a, this is a very self-focused viewpoint. He has no... I mean, you compare King Joram to this, to this servant girl who recognizes Elisha and the true God who can heal 
And King Joram, on the other hand, who should know that, who should have faith in the true God and instead uh, does not. Uh, he's very fearful. So faith in God um, get, uh, get, oh, helps us to overcome fear. There's a lot of things that we can be fearful about. Um, the future and finances and situations that, we, that need to be resolved and, and what, uh, what, 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 how God, what, what God's going to do with us in the future. And there's a lot of things that we can be fearful about. But when we have faith in God, we can have a confidence that He will work things out, that He will direct our paths when we trust in Him, as Proverbs 3 tells us. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not in your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. All right, next point number three is faith overcomes the craving for recognition. Faith overcomes the craving for recognition. Um, we see um, this next, the next character here in the passage is Elisha. Uh, and actually not a lot is mentioned about him right here. Verse 8 says, So it was when Elisha, the man of God, heard the king of Israel had torn his clothes, that he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Please let him come to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. So if you know your, uh, your, your Bible history here, you know that Elisha was the prophet that succeeded Elijah. Right? So Elijah was the prophet that um, confronted Jehoram's dad Ahab and Jezebel. And uh, had that, really that kind of showdown on the mountain against Baal and God and to show who was the true God. And God showed himself uh, ultimately powerful over everything. The, the prophets of Baal could not um, uh, bring anything to show Baal's power. And, and Elijah was able to demonstrate the power of God. And in a brief period of time, the people saw uh, the people of Israel at least recognized God's power. It, must, it didn't stick very long. They didn't turn from their ways. Um, but that was Elijah. And just a few years after that, uh, God, uh, re, God um, brings on Elisha to replace the ministry of Elijah as Elijah is taken to be with God. And Elijah, had, or, I'm sorry, Elisha that we have here in the passage had asked for a double portion from God or a double portion of what Elijah was able to do. So literally... Uh, and I can't remember the exact number, number of miracles, somewhere around eight or nine miracles that have mentioned that Elijah um, performed through God's power. Elisha performed double the amount of, of miracles um, that, that Elijah um, performed. So this was a, a man that God had given a double portion of, of, of power and opportunity to display the, the true God. And, and this is who's in the story here. That's Elisha, the man of God. That was the man of God that this Israelite girl knew that could help um, their enemy. And again, we, we picture these two nations, the commander of the other nation who had brought death and destruction and, and um, kidnapping of, of children for, for, their, their, for slave labor. And this girl recognized that the God of Israel would have mercy on them. He would heal them. And again, we, so that's what we have to kind of keep in mind here. These two nations are enemies, but God doesn't look on them in, in, as enemies. He looks on them as people who, who can turn to him, can place their faith in him. Uh, so we have Elisha recognizing the king's dilemma and uh, send a message to the king, send him my way. Um, I, I, I can deal with this. 
Verse 9, then Naaman went with his horses in the chariot, and he stood at the door of Elisha's house. Verse 10, I always look at this a little bit of funny circumstance. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored to you, and you shall be clean. So Naaman is this mighty man of valor. He is this incredible uh, commander of armies for Syria. And he comes knocking at Elisha's door, and Elisha sent his messenger to him. And you kind of picture him what... So uh, Greg, Governor Greg Abbott wheels up to your door, knocks on your door. Do you send your kids out to talk to him and to, to ask him what he needs and to give him directions down the street or to what he's looking for? I mean, most of us would, would be like a little bit in awe and like go talk to him in person and think, oh, this is my responsibility. This, but Eli, Elisha here uh, knew one of the issues in Naaman's uh, life here, knew that his, one of his biggest uh, roadblocks to the true God was his pride and, and his view of his self-worth. So Elisha sent his messenger. You can go him directly. He sent his, his servant, his messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored to you, and you shall be clean. All right, so and, and just seeing through this passage here, or this, this part of the passage, this character, Elisha, he was not a man who craved recognition. I mean, if he was somebody that was, I mean, he, obviously he, was, he had been seen by some as being able to do great miracles, but that was not who he was trying to project of himself. He was not a man who was craving power and recognition. Instead, he had contentment with what the, the place and the abilities that God had given him. And instead of appearing before Naaman and doing some, a very showy incantation or some very showy, and Naaman actually says, I want you to move, flat, move your hands, uh, do something that, that, that seems like it will heal me. And, and Elisha, that, that, that's not the way I operate. It's not me who's going to do this. I want you to go wash in the, the Jordan River. Um, and we see kind of a, a, a glimpse into Elisha's character. He was not somebody who was trying to garner all the accolades to, to get people to respect him he was trying to point to the the true god as the one who is powerful and a lot of times that's that, that's our tendency is is not that way we want people to recognize what we do we want pats in the back we want praise and recognition we want uh, accolades from other people but faith can give us contentment and the faith that this passage offers that, that it tells us that we need to have faith in the true god is a contentment, then we don't need recognition. All right, faith overcomes pride. So the next um, character we're going to look at specifically is Naaman. Um, Elisha just told him, or had sent a message to him to go wash in the, in the Jordan River, and this is his response, verse 11. But Naaman became furious and went away and said, Indeed, I said to myself, he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord, his God, and wave his hand over this place. And heal the leprosy. So, I mean, so this is not what Haman expected. He pulls up with his entourage, his, his um, servants, his uh, protective soldiers, and comes, knocks on Elisha's door and expects Elisha to come out and have some big showy healing of him. And instead, it's his messenger. And then he, then he kind of and he complains about what Elisha told him to do. He says, he wants me to wash in the Jordan River. And I'm... I don't know what would be equivalent to the Jordan River 
uh, some, some very muddy river. Um, he, in fact, he says here, verse 12, are not the Abana and the Farfar, far, the, far, far, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? So there were some, these two rivers that, that Naaman mentions were uh, rivers that came from the snowfalls from the, the mountains up in Syria, so they're very clear, clean water. And, and, and Naaman is saying, I don't want to get inside that, that dirty Jordan River. It's, it's muddy. It's, I don't, it, it's demeaning. And what has, I, I'm not trying to get a bath here. I'm not, what is washing going to do to help me to, to be healed here? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants intervened in verse 13. And the servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, wash and be clean? So the servants kind of appeal to him and say, Well, if he had, they had asked you to do something great, to climb some big mountain or do some big trek, and at that, that point you'd be healed, you would have done that. But the very fact that this is a very common, ordinary situation, a dirty river, um, is, is why you are not wanting to do this. Verse 14, So he went down and dipped seven times in the Jordan, and according to the saying of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. And the word there, the Hebrew word little child, reflects back really to the, he used the same word for the, the, the um, the girl at the beginning of the passage. I mean, it's, it's a, a purity of a, of a child. I mean, the, the skin of a child, the, um, the how, how children's skin look, very clean, very pure, uh, more elasticity, just a, a health. Um, and just a, a reflection back to the beginning of the passage was this girl was the one who originally said, go down to Samaria and God can heal you through, through the prophet I know. So Naaman um, goes through with this and uh, humbles himself. Uh, so faith overcomes pride. Uh, and of course, the, the opposite of having pride is, is humility, being humble. Uh, he, he was able, and the Bible has, has gives us so many different passages on, on humility, 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 not being wise in our own eyes. James tells us, God opposes the pride but gives grace to the humble. Jeremiah says, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Philippians tells us, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Um, Proverbs tells us pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Um, so there are so many verses throughout Scripture that talk about how God hates pride, how pride can be our destruction, how uh, if we are sufficient in our own eyes and think that we are good enough without God, how we're destined for uh, difficult times as God makes it clear to us that we need Him. And it is so easy to, even after salvation, even after depending upon Christ for his work on the cross for us and, and cleansing up our sin and the regeneration he offers us, it is still easy for us to become self-sufficient, especially when things are going well, to think, oh yeah, I am doing a pretty good job here. Uh, what, what, 
our, our family is doing well, or our situation is going well, and we become dependent. And God doesn't want us to be dependent. He doesn't want us to be. Uh, he doesn't want us to be independent. He doesn't want us to be uh, prideful. But he wants us to recognize that we need God. He wants us to recognize that our strength and our um, holiness comes from God's work in our lives and how he cleanses us from sin and how he, through the work of the Holy Spirit, reminds us that the sin is not okay and that we must confess our sins before him. Faith comes before, uh, our faith gives us humility when we have faith in God. Our last point here uh, in our message this morning is uh, faith overcomes greed. And really, this is the, the saddest part of the whole passage here. Uh, and just to go through this quickly here, uh, Naaman, after he is healed, is, is, just, is just so happy. And he goes back to Elisha, and he has what we just talked about before, that the king's ransom that could have been, in today's value, been three-quarters of a, of a billion dollars to offer to, to Elisha. And to say thank you for healing me, and you're kind of reading between the lines that perhaps some of this wealth was what he had maybe originally taken from Israel in some of his raids, uh, and some of the, his that he had come into Israel and, and taken the, and plundered their country. So it'd be very easy for for Elisha for Israel to to say, yeah, this this is really our money. But Elisha doesn't take the money. He says, I. This is, this is what God has done for you. This was nothing to do with me. I want the, I want the glory to go to God. And, and Naaman responds, his response is to recognize that, that God is the true God. And he's coming from a nation that worships idols, that worships other gods, that has, that has um, given credit for their victories to other gods. And we know from the very beginning of the passage here, it even says it, that the Lord gave Naaman uh, the victory, even over Israel at times, um, empowered him to do that. It wasn't Naaman's gods. It wasn't Naaman's uh, incredible military prowess. It was, it was God who gave him the victory. And Naaman recognized that. He recognized that, that God is the God who can, could heal his affliction, and God is the God that he should worship. And Elisha, not wanting to take any of that away, said, I, I, we don't need your money. Go ahead. We don't need it. Take it back to your country. Um, we're happy for God's mercy on you. Um, but as I said at the beginning, this was kind of a tale of two different servants, the servant girl at the beginning and the servant of Elisha at the very end, Gehazi. And as Naaman starts going off and starts taking this, this king's ransom away, um, Gehazi is just overcome by greed for this wealth. And he chases Naaman down and says, oh, well, we've kind of changed our mind here. There's, there's actually some, some other prophets that are coming. We, they, they need some money. Can you give us, um, what does he say, a certain amount of money? And it, actually, the, the, in today's value, the, it would have been around $10 million. So it was not a small amount. And Naaman says, sure, I'll give you, I'll give you double the amount. So he gives him, in today's equivalency, about $20 million. And, and Gehazi takes that from him under pretense, under, under lie, um, and comes back to, uh, to Elisha's house. 
And Eli Elisha confronts him, saying, "Where did you just go?" And Naaman said, or sorry, Gehazi said, "I haven't gone anywhere. I've just been here this whole time." And through through uh, God's revelation to him, Elisha said, "No, you just went and and took money from Naaman. You just lied about this." And what happened to him? The very end here. Um, the very end of this passage. Um, verse 20 says that therefore the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and your descendants forever and Gehazi went out from his presence leprous as white as snow and it's such a sad ending to a passage that in so many ways was displaying God's mercy to people and how people responded in mercy how Naaman responded to the power of God but Gehazi is trapped in greed and doesn't allow his faith in God to say, God's going to provide for me another way. I don't need $20 million. I don't need the, the olive gardens, the lands and property I can buy, the servants I can have as a result of this. I just need God. And because of that, that, that last-minute decision of Gehazi, perhaps this really this greed that had been in his heart for a long time, Gehazi experiences God's punishment of, of having leprosy himself name his leprosy went to him but the reality of this is this wasn't a death sentence for Gehazi and even this punishment of Gehazi it really was God's mercy to, to him and when God intervenes in our life when he brings his hand of correction against us that's God's mercy saying I don't want you to continue in your sin I want you to respond and, and seek forgiveness and yeah, there may be consequences, but, I, but there's not, um, it does not have to separate you from me, eternity from me. And even in this last act of, of punishment that happens on Gehazi, God is merciful to him. God extends us to us, or God extends to him uh, mercy um, and, and really spared his life and gave him an opportunity to respond in repentance. I don't think anything else is mentioned about Gehazi, at least not the few, next few chapters. We don't know much about him in the future, but really kind of a sad conclusion to his life. But as we, as we look through this, we can see that um, faith is generous. Faith is giving. Faith is not trying to receive and greedy. And that's the way that, that God wants us to respond to other people. God wants us to respond in humility instead of pride. Um, if you've, you may have heard the name Don Shula. He was a, the legendary coach of the Miami, Miami Dolphins. And back during that time, he was, he was very well known. And uh, he, at one point, uh, took a vacation with his wife and was trying to go somewhere where they could kind of get away from people that knew them. And they went all the way up to Maine and were kind of in the the boondocks of Maine, they went to, in the, for their vacation, they went to, the, to see a movie there. Um, and as they uh, walked into the movie theater, they sat down in their seats, the, everybody started clapping when they walked in. And uh, uh, Shula, who was normally a very, from all accounts, a very humble man, leaned over to his wife and said, I guess we're recognized here. I didn't know we were so famous here, even up in Maine. And uh, Shula actually uh, turned to the guy sitting next to him and shook his hand and said, so I guess you recognize me. And the guy said, I don't know you. Uh, 
we're, the manager of the theater said we couldn't start a movie until 10 people arrived, and you, you, you and your wife were the last 10, 10th people, so we can start the movie. <laughs> a lot of times we are very wrapped up in ourselves and wrapped up in our own concerns, and we don't see the needs of other people. And you think about this, this servant girl who, despite being ripped away from her family and all the loneliness and hurt and sorrow and everything she had gone through, she was not wrapped up in herself. She saw the, the, the hurting of her master and her master's wife and said, I know somebody who can help you. God desires us to have that heart, to look beyond our own shallow needs sometimes, even look behind the, 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 our own adversities and have a concern for other people. God desires us to be humble before him. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for um, our opportunity to look at your word this morning. And I pray that you would give us hearts that are humble before you. We thank you so much for your mercies that you extend every day, that they're new every morning. I pray that you would uh, grant us hearts that are receptive and thankful for that. I pray that you would help us to be able to look past our own uh, pride and to um, put off pride, put on humility and a concern for other people. And I pray that you'd help us to be uh, Christians who are givers and not takers. I pray that you would help us to love you more and love other people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.